Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. I'm a child of the 80s, and one of the classic rock anthems of my generation declares this truth, the waiting is the hardest part. Waiting is difficult, isn't it? In life, it feels like we're always waiting on something or someone, waiting for a green light, waiting for a loan or credit approval, waiting for an answer to a question or a proposal, waiting for confirmation on a decision, waiting for our circumstances to change, waiting for help to arrive. Waiting isn't easy. What is easy is to become impatient, to get frustrated while we wait. Having the patience to wait for someone else is not something that most of us have. I mean, we want the help, you know, we, but we want it right away on our timetable. And so most people do not like to wait for other people. What's the old adage? If you want something to get done, then do it yourself. Waiting is difficult, especially when things are falling apart all around you, when it feels like a moment an opportunity is slipping through your fingers. Waiting is difficult when we've decided we can't afford to wait any longer. Hard circumstances test our patience, especially when it comes to waiting on God. Today, as we return to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we come face to face with our impatience, our struggle to wait upon the Lord through the ongoing story of King Saul. Only two weeks and two chapters ago, we were marveling at Saul's rise to leadership as Israel's first king. Saul was called, anointed, and commissioned as the king of Israel through no merit or achievement of his own, but solely by the grace of God's choosing. And at the start of his reign, Saul, through abiding in God's spirit and following the Lord's direction, had done everything right, even securing a military victory over the encroaching forces of a foreign nation, the Ammonites. But sadly, today, some rust is going to appear on Saul's crown as he begins his slip and slide down from the top. By the end of this chapter, Saul will lose the throne of Israel. His tragic descent begins. Saul's life will start to unravel all because of his impatience. But as we're about to hear... Sometimes the waiting isn't the hardest part. Sometimes the hardest part is what happens on the other side of our impatience as we get tired of waiting and take matters into our own hands. Let's listen to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. Today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, "'Let the Hebrews hear!' So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. 
The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This is the word of the God of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Though Samuel had driven the Philistines out of Israelite territories, by the early part of King Saul's reign, they were threatening Israel again. In fact, if we pay attention to the details of this story, and if we know a little bit about the geography of Israel, the Philistines are increasingly encroaching on the area around King Saul's hometown of Gibeah. In response, King Saul raises an army of 3,000 men in order to launch an assault. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, commanding a 1,000 of these troops, successfully initiates a preemptive strike upon a garrison of the Philistines at a place called Gibeah, a city that's located about four miles away from the royal capital. Now, the Philistines take Israel's attack upon them as a declaration of war, and a war is what they come prepared to fight. Their countermove to Jonathan's assault on their outpost is massive. The Philistines assemble a large army of chariots and warriors, and the Philistines make their camp at a place called Mitchposh, Mitchmosh, about a mile away from their garrison where Jonathan attacked and roughly about five miles away northeast of Gibeah. In the meantime, Saul, King Saul blew the shofar, what we might consider an ancient trumpet made out of a ram's horn, He blew the shofar as a way of raising a signal throughout the land and to summon more troops to join him at his camp at Gilgal. But when the people of Israel saw and heard what they were up against, both the superior size and the superior technology of the Philistine army, they don't come running to fight with King Saul. They start running away as fast as they can. An all-out panic ensues as everyone heads for the hills, perceiving themselves so badly outnumbered, some Israelites attempt to dodge the draft by hiding in caves and thickets. Others start jumping behind rocks into pits or empty cisterns. A few are so terrified they desert the war effort by hopping into the Jordan River and swimming east to the other side in order to get out of the country. And the soldiers who already were with Saul at Gilgal, they're shaking in their boots. This is, this is not what they signed up for. What we have here is quite the contrast from the picture of chapter 11. Remember when King Saul, energized by the Spirit of the Lord, rallied the people and rose to victoriously meet the threat of Nahash and the Ammonites. Now, 
The people of Israel demonstrate no confidence in Saul's leadership. And we can't miss the irony here. One of the biggest reasons Israel had asked for a king was in order to gain the experience, a greater sense of, ex of safety and security before the power of all the nations by having a king. And now they have a king. But nothing really has changed. They are just as fearful as they were before. Just as fearful as before the monarchy had been established for them. But perhaps an even greater irony is that once again, surrendering to their fear, rather than abiding in their faith, the people of Israel have forgotten the one who gave them what they wanted, a king, the God who had protected and delivered them countless times before in the face of an advancing enemy. Tragically, King Saul, through his decisions and his actions in this moment, proves to be no different than the people he is leading. He shows himself to suffer from the same lack of trust in the Lord as they do. Before things got this far, before they gathered the troops at Gilgal, apparently King Saul had been given specific instructions by the prophet Samuel. And we need to remember that when Samuel spoke as a prophet of the Lord, it was equivalent, it was as good as if the words came from God's own lips. And the command that Samuel, the prophet and spokesperson for the Lord, gave to King Saul was this, to wait. To wait for seven days for the Lord to act. Seven days. On the seventh day, Samuel would come, lead the people in worship, and offer sacrifices to the Lord, and then tell King Saul the game plan for this battle. At first, King Saul waited as instructed. He waited, and he waited, and he waited. Saul managed to make it through six long days and most of the seventh. But then as that seventh day began to draw to an end, King Saul is at his wit's end. Samuel still has not shown up. The situation <laughs> has not improved. It's still really bad and it's quickly growing worse. The pressure is building. The tension is so thick you could cut it with a knife. Saul's forces are beginning to disappear. Men are going AWOL. With the military situation becoming more and more precarious by the hour and there still being no sign of Samuel, King Saul decides he can't afford to wait any longer. Decisive action is needed. Morale is low. Desertion is high. The battle is being lost before it's even been fought. The people need assurances that victory is still within their grasp. So King Saul takes matters into his own hands. If Samuel is not going to show up, well, then Saul is just going to have to do Samuel's job for him. He gives the order and starts leading the people in worship, offering the prescribed sacrifices. This is the jumpstart that King Saul thinks is going to turn everything around. Why? Well, because this is how things went down when the Philistines last attacked Israel. Do you remember way back at Mizpah in chapter 7? Samuel led the people in worship and offered sacrifices. While the Lord thundered against a Philistine army of great numbers, just like this one, the one they're facing now. King Saul sees religious ritual as military strategy. It doesn't matter whether Saul is, Samuel is here or not. It doesn't matter whether Samuel is here. As long as we have a worship service, as long as I provide the right offering, as long as we give God his due, Israel can be assured of the Lord's action on her behalf. Easy peasy, right? Wrong. 
Just as these sacrifices were being completed by Saul, Samuel comes on the scene. And by the way, Samuel is not late in arriving because it's still the seventh day. Well, King Saul comes out to greet Samuel like everything's copacetic. It's all good. Hey, Samuel. Hey, nice of you to join us. How's your day going? But Samuel dismisses the pleasantries and gets right to it as he asks, What have you done? King Saul quickly goes on the defensive and he makes his case for the actions he's taken. But Samuel remains unconvinced. Samuel remains unconvinced. He responds by declaring that King Saul has made a foolish miscalculation. And then Samuel delivers a surprising and unexpected verdict upon Saul. A monarchy is usually hereditary, right? When a king dies, the son of the king succeeds him. But Samuel declares Saul's success has now come to an end. Saul's contribution to the monarchy of Israel will finish with his tenure. Saul is not being dethroned as king. That's not what's happening here. The throne is being removed from his family line. The kingdom of Israel will not pass from Saul's hands to his son, Jonathan's. The people didn't choose Saul to be king. God did. And now the Lord will choose someone else to take the crown from King Saul. And with these parting words, Samuel leaves the camp no doubt with King Saul's mouth still hanging open. And once the dust has settled from Samuel's departure, Saul's situation does not improve. As he counts up the men he still has left with him, Saul discovers he's only got 600 soldiers by his side. His numbers have shrunk dramatically. And apparently, King Saul's presumptuous plan to conduct the worship service by himself has not had the desired effect of rallying the troops, of bringing his departed soldiers back to him. So, licking his wounds, King Saul heads back to Gibeah to merge the remaining forces he has with his son's Jonathan's troops. The elephant in the room with this sermon is the question many of us are thinking in the midst of this story, but aren't saying out loud. Isn't God being rather harsh on Saul here? Saul loses the throne because he got a little impatient? Really? I mean, if we're honest, it doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime here. I mean, impatience may not be a good thing, but is it such a bad thing that you can end up like Saul? Let's talk about this. Let's talk and briefly consider what King Saul's impatience was communicating. The situation Paul was in, or Saul was in, was a difficult one, facing an alarming threat while continuing to lose the support of the people. The pressure that Saul was under was severe and increasing. Fear was overtaking Israel, and confidence was being beginning to erode in his leadership. But while Saul's temptation in the midst of a difficult situation and increasing pressure is understandable, that doesn't mean his decision to take matters into his own hands is excusable. Far from it. In acting out of impatience, Saul let his circumstances determine his actions rather than the word of the Lord, God's direction. By not waiting on the Lord, Saul was communicating that he trusted his own wisdom and reasoning over God's wisdom, over the Lord's provision and protection. By not waiting on the Lord, Saul was revealing himself not to be a king under God, but rather a king in place of God. Through his actions, Saul was declaring that he as king wasn't working for the Lord as much as the Lord was working for him. 
Uh, perhaps we might argue, well, wait a second, but wasn't Saul trying to defer to God's leadership? I mean, after all, he didn't just march into battle. Saul led the people in worship before the Lord. Good point. But when Saul takes charge of offering the sacrifices of Israel before the Lord, Saul is presuming a role that isn't his to take. Saul, as the king of Israel, was not authorized to serve as the high priest of Israel. My friends, even as far back as the Bible, there was the separation of church and state. Saul, as king, was designated to lead the troops into battle, but it was Samuel, as the priest, who was supposed to lead the people in worship. King Saul's actions, even his intentions, may have been pious, trying to turn to and ask the Lord for help. However, Saul's actual motivations were to use the worship of the Lord not to glorify God, but to contribute to the war effort. And yet, contrary to what many believe, patriotism and the worship of the Lord do not belong together. Love for God must never be co-opted out of love for country. Saul's primary concern was for gaining an advantage, the good luck the worship service and the sacrifices would bring to his prospects in battle. My friends, whenever we attempt to manipulate divine power like this, as a means to serve our own ends, there is a technical old-school term for such behavior. And it's not called true worship. It's called sorcery. Whenever we exercise power in the Lord's name, but not in deference to the Lord's instructions and guidance, we're not honoring or glorifying God. We're seeking to honor, glorify, and protect ourselves. Spiritual words and religious acts by themselves, no matter how sincere or heartfelt, do not necessarily coincide with walking in the way of the Lord. The integrity of both our faith and our witness to Christ is measured by whether or not whatever we say or do arises out of love for Jesus, trust in his word, and following his character and commands. No, fear rather than faith drew Saul to stop waiting on the Lord. Lack of confidence and trust in the Lord led Saul to take matters into his own hands. And apart from the Lord's rebuke through Samuel, apart from the consequences that Samuel declares will follow, what ended up being the net result of Saul's impatience, of his decision to jump the gun when it came to waiting on the Lord? What actually ended up happening? His numbers continued to dwindle. The Israelites who previously left did not rally to his side, and the imminent threat that King Saul perceived ended up being less pressuring than he believed it was, less pressing. Saul was convinced he couldn't wait for Samuel to arrive, but the truth is, he could have. He could have waited. After Samuel's departure, no epic battle ensues. The Philistines instead enact a couple of raiding attacks, but that's all for now. King Saul, like Samuel proclaimed, made a foolish decision. A foolish decision that didn't change his situation. A foolish decision because, because what seemed so urgent never actually came to pass. King Saul actually did have time to wait. And my friends, like Saul, hard circumstances and a sense of urgency often test our patience too. And when those moments come, do we wait for the Lord to lead us or are we like Saul? Does our impatience get the best of us? Do we take matters into our own hands? 
You know, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for us to say we believe in the sufficiency of Christ, that come what may, we will follow Jesus, that we're committed to living according to God's word and spirit. It doesn't take much to say those things when things are going our way, when there's no challenge, no resistance, no obstacles before us. However, the rubber meets the road. The true test of our submission to the Lord the true test of our willingness to actually abide in Christ, the true test of us not just talking about how good God is, but trusting in the goodness of God is when trouble is brewing. As the storm comes, as the rain falls, as what possibly comes next scares us to death. And in the midst of all that, the Lord still calls us to wait upon him. In the midst of the deluge that's before us, Jesus assures us we don't have to fear. As the water level rises and the clouds grow darker and the Holy Spirit offers us peace in place of our worry and concern, that's when our faith gets real. That's when what we believe and who we believe in become obvious. But let's not become confused. While part of this story is about waiting on the Lord, the heart of the problem is not Saul's impatience, and it's not ours either. I mean, don't get me wrong, while we should wait on the Lord, while it's always better to trust in God's timing, we have and we will have moments when we will still be impatient and have to learn the lesson the hard way. Another way of saying this is bad decisions and failure are a part of life. Even our life in Christ, as we are works in progress, being gradually transformed as we follow Jesus by the grace of God. The Lord knows we are not always going to get everything right. The truth is, Saul didn't lose his crown because of being impatient. Saul's inability to wait ended up being symptomatic of a larger problem. And that larger problem is revealed through how Saul responds when confronted with his impatience, with his wrongdoing. Did you notice it when it was read? I, didn't, I purposely didn't mention it earlier. Did you notice how Saul responded when Samuel shows up? Instead of immediately coming clean, Saul at first tries to act like nothing has gone wrong, like everything's fine. And fair enough, let's give Saul the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it truly didn't occur to him that there was a problem. Okay, but then when Samuel makes it clear everything is not fine, and asks, not curiously, but rebukingly, what have you done? Saul still doesn't acknowledge having done anything inappropriate. Saul attempts to rationalize and justify his actions. Saul asserts three justifications for what he's done. The people of Israel were deserting him. Saul says, Samuel, you didn't arrive on time. And then finally, and the Philistines were assembling for battle. Is anybody noticing a trend here? Saul is blaming other people for his actions. Saul is blaming his circumstances for his impatience. Saul's response here is humanity's textbook reply when it comes to answering to God for our brokenness. I mean, we can go all the way back to the beginning, right? When Adam blamed that woman you put here in the garden with me. Or how about Aaron when he blamed these people you left with me while you were having a private meeting with Moses up on the mountain? One of the clearest signs of our brokenness as human beings, in my opinion, is our default human nature when we're caught red-handed, guilty as charged, to self-rationalize, to self-justify, to find someone else to blame. 
Why is the world broken? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? It's not our fault. It's their fault. It's always God's fault. But Saul goes even further here than the blame game. Yes, putting the responsibility on others, on his circumstances, Saul then excuses what he's done by adding he felt compelled to do what he had to do. He had no choice. He was forced to act. Don't miss the implications of this. Saul is now revealing he was not ignorant of what he was doing, but convinced himself it was more important to make the sacrifice than to obey God's instruction. Have we ever made a similar argument when it comes to ignoring, waiting on God, when it comes to trusting in the way of the Lord? My friends, how often in our current political climate, in the midst of the last year of this pandemic, in the face of whatever the perceived threat is before us, how often have we justified our actions or the actions of our leaders in living contrary to how Christ has called us to live? How often, like Saul, have we come up with all kinds of reasons, reasons that sound really good, for doing things our way, rather than following the harder, narrower, sacrificial way of Jesus? And how often, like Saul, do we do so by arguing we had no other choice? The government made us do it. Those kinds of people forced it. All that conflicting health information left us no choice. It forced us to do what we had to do. Like Saul, we can even convince ourselves that our disobedience was not only for our benefit, but it was for God's benefit. We did it for you, Lord. We did it for you. But we're not fooling anybody with that kind of argument. We're just being foolish, like Saul. The kicker in all this is while Saul may in his own mind offer a compelling case as to the why of his choices, why he did it, Saul never answers Samuel's question as to the what, what he's done. Because regardless of the why of the situation, the what remains unchanged. What did Saul do? He disobeyed the Lord's clear instructions. But Saul just keeps making excuses rather than owning what he's done wrong. He just keeps making excuses. And this is so weird because do you remember last week, chapter 12, Samuel's speech before all Israel? As a king, the king, Saul was there. He heard Samuel recount again and again, not only the past events where Yahweh had delivered his people, but the past times where Yahweh had forgiven his people when they confessed their sin and repented and called out to him for mercy. Saul not only heard about God's grace, at that moment, in that speech, he actually experienced it. Saul had seen it happen before his very eyes during that gathering. As the Lord, through Samuel's speech, declared how Israel had sinned yet again and deserved judgment. But then, as Israel confessed her sin and pleaded for mercy, God forgave them. The Lord forgave them and blessed them at the end of chapter 12. Saul personally witnessed how Yahweh is a God who is rich in mercy, who forgives those who own their sin and ask for his grace. And yet here, in a defining moment of his own failure, his own sin falling short instead of owning that failure, instead of repenting and reaching out to receive the grace the Lord willingly offers, Saul defends himself. He blames everyone else. In justifying his own actions, Saul chooses his own wisdom over God's. 
Saul basically is telling the Lord that his reasoning is better than God's direction when the going gets tough. And that mindset, that posture, sets the trajectory for the rest of Saul's story. My friends, what marks Saul's story is not his initial failure and the Lord just comes down on him like a hammer. No, what marks Saul's story is that when he failed, he refused to admit it. Choosing to believe he was right rather than choosing to be forgiven. And what Saul is left with as he rejects God's authority over him, as he rebels against the Lord's conviction that he, Saul, is wrong, what Saul is left with is nothing but his own wisdom, nothing but his own judgment as he goes his own way. Saul is left standing alone, standing apart, standing beyond the Lord's power and direction, not because God has withdrawn from Saul, but because Saul refuses to be drawn in to God's grace. Do we see a bit of ourselves in the person of King Saul? Perhaps more than a bit? More than we'd care to admit? Well, that's the point. The point is not to shy away from owning our brokenness, not to avoid looking within our own hearts and minds for what is not of the Lord, for what needs to be confessed and submitted to God. Not blaming others for our junk, for our choices, our mistakes, our failures, not making excuses for the things we do wrong in following Jesus, not always having, not always wanting to be right, but always embracing the forgiveness and the grace that we need. My friends, the waiting isn't the hardest part. Yes, sometimes the waiting is hard. And there will be times when we don't wait upon the Lord, when we try to get ahead of God, when we insist on taking matters into our own hands. And when that happens, the hardest part, but also the most important part, will not be the waiting, it'll be coming clean. Not coming up with our best defense, but starting with a damn good apology. And that apology, our confession and repentance, aren't for God's sake, they're for ours. We aren't earning or meriting or somehow deserving the Lord's love and grace through owning our stuff and making an apology, no through coming clean, confessing and repenting. We're putting all our junk into God's hands so that we have a clear line of sight, so that we have room in our minds and our hearts for the love and grace that's being offered to us in Christ. Let us then, let us then let go of our excuses and instead lay hold of God's promises. Let us then stop trying to blame someone or something else and start acknowledging our mistakes our failures, all the places we're still learning to trust, not in our wisdom, but in the Lord's. Let us then answer the prompting of the Holy Spirit, not trying to defend ourselves, but instead living out and sharing the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Let us move forward patiently, being patient with ourselves as we continue to wait upon the Lord, knowing that while things may seemingly be slipping out of our hands, they are always, always firmly in God's hands. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.